good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. So Paul writes that uh, he wished everyone would be single like him, so that he would not that we would not be distracted with pleasing our spouses. And so tonight, in honor of pleasing my spouse, I'm going to get us out of here on time. <laughs> we are very punctual people, so I have my phone out, and I feel like I owe it to you. Because last time when we were in Exodus, it was like my sugar stick to steal what Drew says. And I, I just, I lost track of myself. Uh, so anyways, Joshua. So turn with me to Joshua. Uh, we'll, we'll be surveying Joshua. And interestingly enough, I, I think Joshua is a real life surveyor's dream. If you think about Joshua and all that's contained in Joshua, you know, I think we, we quickly recall big stories, like big, big characters, obviously Joshua, Jericho, Rahab. But as I studied through the book, I, almost half of the chapters are detailing the division of the, the land, the allotment of the land, and the inheritance to who the land was being given to. And so literally when you think about you know, uh, Moses dying before entering into the promised land and who was given the charge to lead the people of Israel uh, over to the promised land was Joshua. And so Joshua, Joshua comes uh, really, obviously, you know, uh, front and center here. But the promise of the land really dates back all the way to Abraham. So if you just want to hold your place in Joshua, you can turn and look at Genesis 15, 17 through 21. And it says, As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth gener- generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And again, you find this in, uh, it's repeated again in Deuteronomy eleven twenty four through 25, because if you look at Joshua, and I'll read verses 1, 1 through 4, it says, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord said to Joshua, the son of, of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. So again, that promise that was given to Abraham, the land is reiterated to Moses in Deuteronomy eleven twenty four through 25. And he goes on to say, the land is painted as this, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea towards the going down of the sun shall be your territory. If you look over, it says also uh, in verse 
uh, excuse me, 15, it says, until the Lord gives rest to your brothers, he has to you, and they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan towards the sunrise. So I bring up the sunset and the sunrise, because really, when you think about surveying the land, it's laid out. The Jordan River is really the mark of the impasse. And so if we were to paint this for us, the Jordan River would be running north and south. Uh, the Mediterranean Sea would be on this side of the river, and uh, three tribes would be given inheritance on this side of the river. And so you've got Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben, the half-tribe of Manasseh. So that's uh, two and a half, and then you have nine and a half tribes that were given inheritance between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. And so when you think about the people leaving Egypt, they would have come under, you know, through the Red Sea, and then gone through this side and then entered back into the Promised Land, crossing the Jordan, headed, headed to the Mediterranean Sea. I just tell you that because the, a lot of the, the layout of the book of Joshua is referencing the fact that we should all know that. Um, so it's a land of rest, and it has boundaries. So this land that they were given has boundaries. It has a north boundary, it has a south boundary, it has an east boundary, and a west boundary. But there's only one means by which the conquest takes place, and that's at the leadership of, of conquering by a champion. And so if you remember about Exodus, you know, there was this theme of the children, right? That was that thread that we really traced ourselves back through the whole book of Exodus. And, and this evening, I, I think the, the reality is that Yes, we want to look at Joshua, and we want to look at the character of Joshua, but I also believe that when we think about taking the land, that we do well to understand the division of the land, how the land was laid out, and that the land was conquered by a champion. So Joshua 2, uh, Jericho, I, I think that should be probably pretty, uh, you know, that's a children's Bible story. So if you, just to summarize in chapter 2, the Two witnesses are sent from the camp, and they are sent into the city, and they meet Rahab, and Rahab takes them into their house, into her home, and she immediately knows who they are. If you look at uh, chapter 2, verse 10, it says, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. So she knows the Exodus. She knows the story. The, the, the theme of the Exodus, I, I believe, is, is an overarching meta-narrative that we do well to always have being brought to remembrance. And so Rahab immediately knows the story that they left Egypt, that they were followed by Pharaoh, and she is struck with the fear of God, knowing that it was not by their might nor by their count, but it was by the mighty hand of the Lord that they were delivered from Pharaoh, and that the earth God using the earth came to defend the people. So if you look at 2.24, uh, in, in chapter 2, verse 24, and they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. So Rahab gives them a report to the two witnesses. Hey, I, I know who you are. I know the God you serve. And I know by the mighty hand of God that you were delivered. And she says, I'll give you a report about all the nations that are here. They're scared to death of you. They're scared to death of the God that you serve. And so this land is ripe for the taking. 
uh, not by sword, not by might, but just by the fact that they were ready to fold at the fact. And so that's the report that these two witnesses, the two, these two spies, uh, come back to Joshua with and report back. As you think about Jericho, we can quickly kind of fast forward. Uh, you know, Jericho, there's the, the, the priest gather around the nation. Uh, there's, a, there's a process, a procession. Uh, Rahab makes a, a deal, if you will, a covenant with the, the two witnesses and says, hey, if I hide you from the people that are looking for you, will, will you save me in my home? And they say, yes, if you'll hide us. And so they, they report back that there's someone there that has been uh, saved. There was a scarlet thread put out her window that was a sign for that part of the uh, city was not to be attacked. Um, so she was saved. She was preserved. Um, if, you, if you move on to Joshua 3, we quickly look at uh, Joshua 3. It is the nation crosses the Jordan. So you've got, again, all the nation is staged, and they're getting ready to cross the Jordan, and there's a, there's a way in which they will cross. And it says in verse 10, And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. So there's those nations again. There's those nations that were promised to Abraham, that were promised to Moses, and here, here they are, are referencing the land that was drawn out by borders that we already laid out for us. And it goes on to say in 3.17 of that chapter that this is how, this is how you're going to cross. I'll start in verse uh, 16. It says, The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. And those flowing down toward the Sea of Arabah the salt sea were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. So the next chapter, if you're in a Bible like mine, the next uh, chapter, chapter four, says 12 memorial stones from the Jordan. So Julie and I went to Sedona a couple of years ago for an anniversary trip, and we had, uh, we had never hiked before, but we were, we were always, I guess probably since our mid-20s, we've always prided ourselves in at least having some level of physical fitness. So going to the gym, being able to run. And so we set out to go to Sedona. And Sedona is a uh, kind of, it's in Arizona, it's uh, south of the Grand Canyon, and a beautiful place. I saw in a painting, it said, uh, God created the Grand Canyon, but he lives in Sedona. So just like, it shows you like the, the element of like intimate beauty that you can actually get and behold there. And so we set out on a hiking trip and we had the list of Sedona hikes. And so they were ranked like numbers one through 20. And of course, Julie being as competitive as she is, she was like, why would we delay? let's do number one for the hardest one. And it was like Bear's Trail on Bear Mountain. It was six and a half miles, lots of elevation, and we had never hiked before. And so I sat out with my book bag, you know, like that I travel in an airplane with. And at the time I was a big Diet Coke guy. I didn't even drink coffee at the time, but I had a Diet Coke in the bag and I had a, had a case of water in the car. And I think we took two bottles of water with us. Okay, two bottles of water and a Diet Coke. And we've got pictures on the way, you know, like taking our picture, like we're off. Well, we didn't realize on the way, like we get up on the trail and we're, and we're out in nowhere. We've lost the car. We don't see the car anymore. And so we're on the trail. Well, the trail starts to get 
less traveled. And so we come up onto this uh, trail and it looks like it looked like it went four different ways. And it did went four different ways. And so we were like, well, I think it probably would make sense. There's the, you know, we're doing all this, like, I think there's the peak of the mountain. So we'll go this way. So we get off in the scrub brush. But before that, there were these little piles of rocks and they're, they're called cairns, C-A-I-R-N-S. Okay. So Julie and I walk up and they're like, these are so cute. People have been stacking rocks. And so we like literally took a rock and put it on one and put it on the other. Meanwhile, we left the trail. And so we get off, and I mean, we're in the scrub brush. It's, it's funny we didn't get bit by a rattlesnake or encounter any other sort of live animal. But we start hearing voices, and we're like, go to the voices. And so we get back to the trail, and it's the park ranger. And the park ranger, he says, he walks the path, he hikes the path every morning. And he goes, he starts chastising us, like, you're off the trail, you're on protected property. And we're like, we had no idea. And he's like, have you ever been hiking before? And I'm like, no. And he goes, follow the stones. And I was like, oh, that makes perfect sense. Follow the stone. We felt like a couple of dummies. Anyways, we survived. We made it back. We got to the top of the mountain and we had absolutely no food. And we had run out of water. This girl we met was like eating lunch. And we were both like, my, our muscles were tremoring. Anyways, we got back down to the car. Never been so happy to see a 24-pack of water in a hot trunk ever in my life. I tell you all that to say as a purpose of that is Joshua 4 is memorial stones. And so th- this is a, a, an interesting parallel because in 4.6, it says, what do these stones mean to you? And so as they cross the Jordan, the people of Israel are commanded to, to make a memorial. And it's a make a memorial when they cross the Jordan to mark the way. And so as they mark the way, it says, what, what do these stones mean to you? And in verse 7, it says, then you shall tell them. It says when your children ask, because this is going to be a perpetual memorial throughout the, throughout the generations of the people that would live there. And it says, you should tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it passed over the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. If you look at 4.23, it says again, it says, for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So these people, like how do, how do we recall these people of the story? Because in Joshua 5, you quickly see that there's a new generation here. And in 5-4, once they've crossed over, it's like, who are these people that crossed over? How do we recall them? Where are they in the broad you know, context of the story that we're studying here in Joshua. And then also now that the narrative is really pulled in, the land promised to Abraham, the land repeatedly promised to Moses, and then now we're getting this overarching really connectivity of the story at Broad, where Exodus is now, Moses has given the commission to Joshua, and Joshua's moving the people into the land. But yet the story, the journey is connected. It's not like we've ended the story and we picked up something new. Rahab knows of the exodus of Moses, and now here the stones are supposed to remind the people not only that the waters were, were divided at the Jordan, but also to remind them just as the Lord did at the Red Sea. So we have this new generation, and in 5.4 it says, here, here's who's cr- just crossed the Jordan. It says, and this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them all, all the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, 
had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. So we really have, and this is where all the scripture can inform us, we really have men ages 20 and over that were in the wilderness when the original two spies went into Canaan. It was Joshua and Caleb. So here they are connected, come full circle, at least with Joshua at this point. They're the ones that gave the witness. And you have all these men of war that were counted 20 years and older who said, no, we don't, we don't believe it. Like they, there were 10 other spies. They came back with a report totally different. And the pe- they made the people of Israel's heart melt in accordance with how they viewed the people in Canaan. And there's a reason why that they did this. There was some sort of like reason in their heart that they were thinking, I don't want, we can't go conquer the land. And it tells us in verse 7 of chapter 5, it says, it was their children whom he raised up in their place. And so it's like, well, that's weird. Like, why, why would we... Why is the Lord raising up their children in place of the men of war? And this is where we really have to go back in Deuteronomy. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 1, hold your place and turn back with me. Deuteronomy 1, and I'll read for us 34 through 40. It says, at the top, this may be at the top of your section of your Bible, mine says, the penalty for Israel's rebellion. And it says, And the Lord heard your words and was angered, and he swore, Not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers. Except Caleb, he shall see it. And to him and to his children I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he, was, he has wholly followed the Lord. Even with me the Lord was angry on your account and said, You shall not go in there. Joshua the son of Nun who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. And as for your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there, and to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. And so there, for 40 years, Lawson brought to our attention last week, their shoes didn't wear out, their clothes didn't wear out, they had all the accommodations, all the food, but yet men were dying. It seems like you know, just, just a, an absolute miracle in their midst for 40 years. And so here the Lord, being so faithful, brings these children into the promised land. And now we would have said they're, they're grown, they're grown. In verse 2 of chapter 5, it says, At that time the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. And it says, So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. And so I think this is an interesting kind of New Testament kind of informing my perspective. I've always thought it's really interesting that it says a second time. And I think I think you can definitely view that in the, in the uh, historical grammatical that it's definitely accounting a time in which the, it, the, uh, the nation of Israel was circumcised as a whole and then here a second time. But, you know, we really have to think about the way that Paul describes was Abraham circumcised before or after his heart was circumcised. And so it always says after. And so we would have to come to understand that as the, 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 the story continues, that these children being born again were circumcised of the heart. I mean, Deuteronomy says, 31.16, this people with their hearts circumcised. I mean, the Lord's already communicating that this is a work not of the flesh, but of the Spirit, not in your flesh, but on your heart. 
And so uh, Psalm 95, 7 through 11, just, just to really drive home uh, the, the perspective of who are these men in the wilderness. So Psalm 95, and I've got verses 7 through 11, it says, and I'll read verse 6, it says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And here we have this connecting that the land and the promised land is connected to a land of rest. And it keeps on going. So the fathers in the wilderness who always resist, we find in 510 that it's a retelling of while the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover the 14th day of the month in the evening of the plain. So they take circumcision, they take the Passover there, and then in verse 12 here, the minute they step onto the land, the manna ceases. And so you can find that there. And then... uh, as we move into Joshua 6, Jericho falls. I won't spend a lot of time on Jericho. I, I think it's a story, like I said, that we all know. It's a beautiful story. You could spend an entire night on it. But as we move forward, I, I really want to focus in on these fathers in the wilderness, the, the land as an inheritance, and really as you keep finding these memorial stones coming up in this story. So as we move past Jericho, the defeat of Jericho, we can move to Joshua 7, 8, and 9, all three chapters. And in verse 26 of chapter 7, it gives us really, to me, in my mind, the highlight of the verse of, of what's happening. And, and you can really think about this section of Scripture. After they come out of Jericho, you have Israel goes into battle at Ai, and they get defeated. And it's because of the sin of Achan. And so Achan had taken some things from Jericho that were to be devoted to destruction, and he hides them, and it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a valued possession, but these were things that the Lord said are unholy, needed to be devoted things, and they needed to be uh, not taken. They were unholy. And so the people find out the reason why they lost at Ai, they got defeated, is because there was some sin inside the camp. And so they end up through a series of events where... Um, where they discover Achan has taken these things, he admits them. And in verse uh, 26, they kill him, they stone him, and they burn him with fire. And so it purges the evil from the camp. And after that, not only did they do that, but they also raise another set of memorial stones. And so as you're continuing to really move with the people, you move across the Jordan, you have memorial stones, then here at the, at the, uh, at, at the judgment of, of Achan, um, in verse 26, it says, And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remain to this day, that the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. As we move into verse 9, you find out that there was a tribe called the Gibeonites, and the Gibeonites had also heard, uh, as Rahab had, 
had told that they knew their hearts had melted because they knew what the backstory was, the leadership under Moses and what the Lord had done. And so they hatch a plan to trick Joshua and Israel. And so they come to them with tattered clothes and said they traveled a long way and said, you know, we, 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 really, wanna, we really want to come into your camp and be a part of you know, your nation. It says, well, you make a covenant with us. And so uh, through, their, through their deception, they are, quote unquote, saved. Uh, and it says in verse 23 of chapter 9, once Joshua finds out what they've done, he says, why did you deceive us, saying that you were very far from us? Because they weren't. They were actually, they were actually citizens of the king of Gibeon, the Gibeonites, and they knew they were kind of next in line. And so they were looking to bail out and get an insurance policy on not getting destroyed. And, and he says, here's the judgment. Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because you and did this thing. So as we continue to move on, you know, we again, we there in my mind, you again encounter the, the idea that they know the Exodus story. They know the history of Israel. They know all the events that have led up to this moment. And so Joshua 10, 11, and 12, this is where I say it is a surveyor's dream for this book, because here in chapters 10, 11, and 12, you really get, as I had kind of drawn with my hand this this river running north and south you get the conquest and how the how the land begins to be really conquered so the conquest of the uh, excuse me the conquest of the southern uh, of southern Canaan happens in chapter 10 and it, it lays out all sorts of you know five kings that they killed, and then they went into war and they captured not only the kings but the kingdoms, and so they end up totally striking the whole land of the southern of southern Canaan. And then in verse eleven, excuse me, chapter eleven, it moves into northern Canaan. Uh, but in my mind, really, and, and and again, it lays out all the kings that they destroyed, and not only the kings but the cities that belong to those kings. And it really, in my mind, in eleven twenty. Chapter 11, verse 20, really summarizes it. It says, For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts, that they should come against Israel in battle, in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy, but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. So in 1224, again, thinking about just a conquering motif of the land or the recount of the conquering of the land, you've got the southern, northern, and then it gives you here in 12, 24, that Joshua and the people of Israel destroyed all, all in all 31 kings. So a lot of success still had up to chapter 13. But then in chapter 13, verse 1, it says there's still land to be conquered. And it references Joshua it says, Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains. And he begins to paint out really a filling full of the land. You know, all of this land they had already conquered, 
the five kings that led them in across the Jordan, uh, excuse me, the two kings that led them across the Jordan with Moses, and then 31 kings with Joshua. And he says, there's still yet to be, uh, there's still land yet to be conquered. And here it says, we've got two and a half tribes, as I had talked about, that was eastward. So on before they entered and crossed the promised land, excuse me, crossed the Jordan into the promised land, Moses had already get, given Manasseh, the half-tribe of Manasseh, Gad and Reuben, their inheritance there. And as you enter into chapters 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19, the whole, every chapter I just read for you is the allotment and inheritance west of the Jordan. And so this goes to essentially a certain amount of tribes in that area. Uh, it, 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 and you can read. I mean, it ends with, you can look in your Bible. You know, one thing I, at work, I always hate when somebody reads a PowerPoint to me because we can all read. So it's like in, in chapter 16, it tells you every heading of every chapter. If you're looking at your Bible, it gives you all the tribes that were allotted uh, inheritance and land and how it was divided among the people. And in verse, um, in chapter 19, verse 49, it says, when they had finished distributing several territories of the land as inheritance, the people of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, uh, the son of Nun. By command of the Lord, they gave him the city that he asked, uh, Timnasarah, in the hill country of Ephraim, and he rebuilt the city and settled in it. Um, in chapter 20, is this interesting layout of the cities of refuge. And so the cities of refuge were for manslayers within the Mosaic law. If you accidentally killed someone or you dropped a brick on someone or you ran over them with your ox with a plow, it was an ability to flee for your life. That way you didn't, you didn't face judgment or consequences from their family if they came to enact revenge. And so these were cities uh, inside every town that could be fled to. And it says uh, in verse 6, 20 verse 6, it says, And the manslayer shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is high priest at the time. Then the manslayer at the death of the high priest may return to his own town and his own home to the town from which he fled. So as you turn, as you turn so every, every really inheritance and allotment of land had a city of refuge. Uh, and, but then Le, the, the tribe of Levi, Levi, you find in chapter 21, the cities and pasture lands allotted to Levi. So the Levites were always told that the portion of the Lord was their inheritance. But yet here we find a place in Scripture where it details for us within the cities that these priests and their families were given pasture lands and a place to dwell. So I, I've, in my time in church, I've, I've run across, you know, all sorts of, I'm sure as you guys have, all sorts of personalities and characters and differing beliefs, whether they be tertiary, secondary, or primary. But for me, you know, I, I've always found it fascinating, you know, for a Christian Zionist, you know, where it's one, where it's, uh, it, it's a eschatological view, I, I can't even get that word out, uh, view where you know, it's like the Lord's going to come back and he's going to reinstate uh, the, the kingdom of Israel and the land. And we get all real focused on the land. You know, it's this land's going to be given back to the, 
to the Jewish people. And then all of a sudden it makes me feel like I need to pack my bags and get over there because I'm going to miss out on something because that's where the, you know, this whole, this whole theology just keeps going. It's where the temple is going to be rebuilt and the Levitical priesthood is going to be reinstated and there's going to be sacrifice, you know, sacrificial system, not, you know, not from atonement for sin, but yet more praise and gift offerings. And so you get all that, you get this whole kind of theory wrapped around. But in my mind, what gives me peace around around the 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 land is that the promises that were given to Abraham and to Moses and to Joshua were fulfilled. And so the land promise is fulfilled and you can look at chapter 21 of Joshua verses 43 through 45. It says thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. So that chapter, you know, on this earthly promise, you know, this, this uh, promise to have an earthly place has been fulfilled. You know, so now that it's been fulfilled, you see in Joshua 22 that the eastern tribes return home. And so the eastern tribe of uh, Reuben and Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh return home to the east side of the Jordan. And another interesting memorial gets built here. It's, uh, 20, it's chapter 22, verses 28 through 29. And it says, uh, it says they build this huge, I mean, just like uh, overbearing like altar of stone. And it's so big, the word gets back, and they, they, there's almost a war that's going to come to pass here. You know, all, all nine and a half tribes on the west side come to the two and a half on the east side, and they're like, we're, you, the only place you sacrifice is at the tabernacle, at the altar in front of the tabernacle. It doesn't happen anywhere else. Why would you build this? And it says, uh, it says in verse 28, and we thought, so this is the eastern tribes bringing a, a word of defense to themselves. And it says, we thought, if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, and it's, they're, they're looking at the altar. It says, Behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. It goes on to say, Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. So again, it's just another memorial. It's another rem- memorial of pointing them to the, to the altar in, at the tabernacle that they would always be able to remind themselves of where they go, where they've come from, where they go. And so again, it's just a demonstration that they can, they can know in verse 31, the, the, the second half of 31, it says, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. It goes on to say in verse 34, it says, The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness. For they said, It is a witness between us that the Lord is God. So if you, if you move on, Joshua 23 Chapter uh, chapter twenty three verses one through sixteen, 
And again, verse one, it says, a long time afterward when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers and said to them, I'm now old and well advanced in years and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. In verses 1 through 13, um, excuse me, 1 through 16, he says, we're about to die, and he gives this charge to them, and he says in verse 12, do not make marriages with them, you know, that, that your hearts would be led astray. And so he not only reminds them of the faithfulness of the Lord, but that he is about to go the way of all the earth and then gives them this charge, you know, do not be unequally yoked. Do not take for you yourselves wives who are essentially unbelievers uh, because they'll be a snare to you. It says in verse 13, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given to you. Here is in verse 14, he says, and now, this is Joshua speaking, and now I'm about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you, not one of them has failed. In verses, um, as we move to Joshua 24, really the, 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 final, the final chapter of this book, uh, the covenant, Joshua 1 through 13, verses 1 through 13, he gathers all the people together and he, he retells for them the journey. It says, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Now, that's fascinating. I mean, he's, he's talking about Abram. He's going back and making the people remember all the way in the beginning that Abram was taken from beyond the Euphrates. Listen to what he says. He says, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. He's retelling them the story. He's starting from Abram being beyond the Euphrates, journeying through Canaan, taking them all the way down, and even, even Abram, Abraham even went into Egypt, even spent time in Egypt before being buried at the cave in the land of Canaan that he bought. And it says in verse five, it picks back up and says, and I sent Moses and Aaron and plagued Egypt. So you've, you go from Abram to Jacob with Jacob's 72 original family members when Joseph was the chief engineer of salvation in Egypt with grain and he was the engineer of all that. So if you remember that story, Jacob comes and brings his family because of the famine. And then there, this great nation is birthed in the midst of Egypt. And Pharaoh, remember there's a Pharaoh that arose and said, 
that if this nation is too many and if we keep letting them you know grow and build that they'll they'll overthrow us keep having babies they're going to overthrow us so it says and i sent moses and aaron i plagued egypt with what i did in the midst of it and afterward i brought you out then i brought your fathers out of egypt and you came to the sea and the egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the red sea and when they cried to the lord he put darkness between you and the egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them and your eyes saw what i did in egypt and you lived in the wilderness a long time again why did they live in the wilderness a long time they lived there 40 years because their fathers were unfaithful and did not believe and they said well we we're scared to go in because something might happen to the children and so the one thing that they idolize, God saves, almost rubs their face in it and says, look what I'll do when you think it can't be done and what you're so concerned about. If you'll just follow my, dire- you know, you'll follow my word, I'm faithful. It says, uh, then I brought you to the land, you meaning the children. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you and I gave them into your hand and you took possession of their land and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam. This is still under Moses' hand, under Moses' leadership in the wilderness. Invited Balaam, the son of Baor, to curse you, but I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and I gave them into your hand. Says I, and I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. So verse 15, 14 and 15 says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I don't know about y'all, that verse in my mind is often misapplied, misquoted. <laughs> so I, I, uh, yeah, I think at least Joshua, it's such a well-known story. I, I, can, I can sympathize with it. Um, but we'll talk about the house of the Lord. Verse 27, at the end of this, at the end of this, it says, And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. Verse 29, Joshua dies. Verse 32, Joseph is dead. Verse 33, the priest dies. All the people die. You know, this is where, in my mind, we have to really, you know, think about this. You know, I think I've become so accustomed to death that it doesn't strike me as odd. You know, it doesn't strike me as odd that these people die because death is just natural. You know, death is like something I've grown accustomed to in this fallen world. But it is so unnatural. You know, here, to think about all that Joshua had led them to and that there was still quote-unquote, land to be conquered. But yet, we know as the story continues to unfold, the nation fell. 
I mean, they're carried off in the captivity, Assyria, the Babylonians. I mean, time and time again, like the land vomits them out. I mean, that's what the Bible says. But Hebrews 4.8 gives us great insight into how to interpret the story. Hebrews 4.8 says, For Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. If Joshua had given them rest, so the question is, what, what type of rest, what type of land were they given? It says in verse 9, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Hebrews 7.23 says that the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. So this office that that Joshua holds, he couldn't continue in it because he died. The priest, although many in number, couldn't continue in the office because they died. Moses couldn't continue in his office because he died. Aaron couldn't continue in his as the high priest because he died. So you see this death. But these did die in something. 11.13 says of Hebrews, says these all died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, that earthly land, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Going on in verse 29 uh, through 31, it says, By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. You know, I was thinking about this speech of Stephen in Acts 7. You know, it's like, if you, these are your dying words. Like, what are you going to say to refute the, the, the argument that Christ is who he is and the gospel is sufficient? Like, what do you go with? Like, you know, do you go, you know, what verses do you bring out? If you look at Acts 7, he, you know, Stephen, astonishingly, goes with something that probably none of us would think about recounting, but his entire speech is the same story that Joshua retold. He was like, let me, let me remind you how this all went down. Abram's across the river worshiping idols, and God brings him in, and then he's got, I mean, he just starts laying it out. He starts telling them about Moses. He starts telling them about Joshua. But then, but then he draws their attention to a character here in, in this story of Joshua, and I believe the story is, is you, you, see this, you see this identity, if you will, this character throughout the story. And he, 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 this is what gets him stoned. 
These people are so enraged. They know exactly what he's saying. He, they are so mad that they murder him. Acts 7.51, it says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. I mean, right there, he, they say, which of the prophets did your fathers? And they start laying to this generation the blood of all the prophets. You didn't believe you murdered them. You didn't believe you murdered them. You didn't believe you murdered them. And you know who you were murdering? You kill the ones who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Capital punishment. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. He's placing them in that perpetual story and saying, that's who you are. You're the people that care about things that don't matter and are full of unbelief and full of disobedience and wouldn't go in the promised land and you know who you are, you're perishing in the wilderness. That's who he says they are. And they are enraged by that fact. Look how Jesus talks to this to, to the Sadducees and Pharisees, he speaks in the same way. In Matthew chapter 23, uh, Matthew chapter 23, 29 through 36. Matthew chapter 23, verses 29 through 36. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape? How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. This generation is the disobedient fathers. It's the ones who would not listen to the two spies, Joshua and Caleb. These are the ones who, throughout all of Israel's history, you see them shed blood, shed blood, shed blood. So Joshua 24, moving back, Joshua chapter 24. It says, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Hebrews 3, 1 through 5 tells us who the house of the Lord is. I mean, you know, the... Turn with me back there. I just think Hebrews is such a helpful book in helping us discern the interpretation of Scripture. Hebrews 3, verses 1 through 5 says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, 
who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. You know, this, this idea of, you know, the people journeying, you know, they, you know, they, they journey, they cross the Jordan, they enter the promised land, they're setting up memorials along the way, constantly reminding them of God's faithfulness, about how he is to be approached, how he can be trusted, how they remember that he was always faithful, how it's to inform them through remembrance on how they are to continue to follow him. And so I was thinking about, you know, this idea, again, going back to death and having death just eliminate these men from their offices. And when you think about Revelation 1.18, Christ says, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. You know, 1 Corinthians 15, 26 says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so the question would be, when? Like, we, we, we know that death was defeated at the cross, but it seems to be that the last enemy to be placed under his feet is death. And when that happens, the saying in 1 Corinthians 15, the saying will come to pass, death, where is your sting? Death is swallowed up in victory. Because, you know, as as you back up from the story, what you begin to understand is that Joshua didn't lead the people to the true promised land. Joshua didn't lead the people to true rest because he was prevented by death. The people that followed him were prevented by death. It says these men and women who believed died in faith. And they died in faith, looking forward to the coming of the righteous one, the true conquering champion. Because if you look at Revelation and what that book does for us, is it really lets us understand that there is a conquering champion. There is one who holds his priesthood eternally because he is not hindered by death. There is one who is a conquering champion because he does not die out of his office. And guess what? We say he's given to us eternal life, but yet we still experience death. And so this great hope is, is that the glorification of the body, right? This is what Paul says, what is sown immortal, excuse me, what is sown mortal will be raised immortal. And so we long for our conquering king. You can turn to the end of Revelation and read him coming on a white horse, leading the armies, destroying all enemies, creating a place, he says, making all things new, wiping away every tear. And he says, I give them rest on every side because outside of there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And so this beautiful, this beautiful thing is our eyes should be fixed, fixed on Christ, who we know sufficiently conquered death at the cross, but yet I hope, I hope in the glory to come. 
you know, this is that reality where our faith is turned into sight. And so if you turn with me to Revelation 21, we'll conclude. 21 verse 1, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Verse 2, it says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these are the words, trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Brothers and sisters, we know who the true conqueror is. We know who the one that leads us into the true and better promised land, because the scriptures tell us all of those were limited by death. But I just think this is such a glorious truth to cling to, that we see our conquering champion actually bring to pass what was detailed in Joshua, almost like shadow substance, like a foretelling or a foretaste of what's to come. Because in the end, you see this new Jerusalem in the city. You see the 12 tribes given inheritance around that city. It says every gate is for every tribe, and they bring the glory of the nations into it to worship him. He says in the middle of it, there is no temple anymore because he is the temple. And the, there, there is no need for sun because he is the light. And so for me, it's just a great reminder that we have these things along, the, along our way that bring to remembrance what he's done, that we wouldn't stray off the path, that we wouldn't do things that are like these examples, that we would stay the course. And I think obviously in the ordinary means of his grace that we have here, we have the table, we have the preaching of the word, we have the gathering of the saint, but you, saint, have the Holy Spirit, you have the word, and we can cling to the faithfulness of God to keep our eyes fixed on him, our conquering champion. Let's pray. Father, we love you and just thank you that we do see Jesus, our conquering champion, when he said, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so, Father, we're so thankful for the work of Jesus, the one who was lifted up in the wilderness, the one who leads us into the true and better promised land. Because, Father, here we admit, as all the saints do, that we are not like those fathers in the wilderness, but we are like the children. And so, Father, we cry, Abba, Father. We look at you. We know what we've been made out of your grace. Father, you're leading us to a place where we did not labor, we did not toil, and yet we will find rest there. And so, Father, here below, there's an encouragement for each one of us to strive to enter that rest. And so, Father, as we're here below, we're still battling that old man, that, that sinful man. And so, Father, would you just 
cause our heart's affection to be swelled for the finished work of Christ because it's only in the gospel that we find our sufficient Savior. And so, Father, would you just give us the the feet of the gospel that we would not only have mouths ready to share, but that we would have feet of endurance, Father, endurance that we know are only given by uh, to us by you, Father. And so, Father, in the end, we just we just want to keep our eyes fixed on you, the author and finisher of our faith, and we want to run the run the race well. And so, Father, we'll trust you in that work. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.